You're listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. For more information, please visit our website at everynationgta.org. It's good to have you here this morning. Uh, for those who don't know who I am, my name is Richard. One of the pastors here. It's a great joy to welcome you into one of our Sunday services. And uh, we're, uh, we're kicking off the new year in a new series called Resolved. But uh, as a way of getting things going, I want to ask you a question. Do you recall the last time you shared a meal with someone? Okay, now not your family because like, well, last night we had dinner together. But maybe a colleague, maybe a friend, uh, maybe someone else, maybe a date. Um, what was the occasion like? Where were you? What was the feeling like? So uh, a couple of weeks ago, it's actually the first week of January, I had a friend, uh, an old friend way back from university days. Uh, actually, was my best man at my wedding. And uh, he um, he's now living in the States in Texas. But he was up here on uh, work and business. And so he texted me out the blue and said, hey, I'm here. I'm like, I have a night free tomorrow night. Are you free for dinner? I know it's short notice. So now if you know anything about the kids, we're planners. Uh, in part, it's just who we are. We've always been planners. We like to plan things, like to plan vacations a year in advance. Anyone like that? Any planners out there? All the spontaneous people are like, oh, that's disgusting. <laughs> How could you ever live like that? I'm so sorry. So part of my job today is to convert all of you to be planners. No, it's not. Uh, part of us is planners and part of just stage of life. Just lots of things going, kids, activities, that kind of thing. We just need to keep sanity in our home. And so it's like, oh, it's tomorrow. It's like, ah, oh, it's cold. You were staying downtown. I was like, ah, oh, get in the subway and... I haven't seen him in like seven years. I was like, ah, you know, guys are like this. Like, ah, I could see him, you know, wait another five years. We can get together. Like, it's okay. It's like, so I was like, no, okay, let's go. I'll go. So I, uh, the following evening was a Thursday night, uh, jump in the subway. As I'm about to get in the subway, he texts me. He's like, hey, I, um, what do you feel like eating? I'm like, I'm not a fussy eater. Really, I'm not a fussy eater. I'm like, whatever, like, whatever you feel like you're, you're in town. He says, okay. So I get out of the subway and he's messaged me. He says, look, I found a nice uh, steakhouse. It's like five minutes from my hotel. We can walk there. I'm like, you can never go wrong with the steakhouse, right? I mean, I was like, there's a Nando's like a block away, but like steakhouse, Nando's. Okay, let's go with the steakhouse. So we go to the steakhouse and it's this beautiful, like kind of a, a lot of like Toronto places, like hole in the wall. You kind of, there wasn't like fancy about it, but I walk in there and like immediately it's like, oh, all the waitrons are in suits. And they're like, hello, gentlemen, uh, do you have a reservation? And it's like a Thursday night. I'm like, oh, is that going to be a problem? And then she was like, let me just go call the maitre d'. It's like, <laughs> okay. So, and there was no one in there. Well, there was a few people in the restaurant, but not a lot of people to say like, I think you have a spare tables. Then uh, maitre d' comes and I think he gives us a little look over. And like, I'm in jeans. <laughs> winter jacket he's just come from work like we're, we're, you know so I, for whatever reason I, I think it's our accents got us in our accents sound exotic you sound like you you become you're like the next tech billionaires underground so come this way so then there's coat check you ever been to a restaurant where you have to check in your coat and there's actually that's a designated person's job is to take your coat and then give you so all of a sudden, I'm seeing some signs like, well, we might be in the wrong place here. Uh, but we walk through, and then he walks us through a maze after maze of room, and just like secret room after secret room after secret room. And eventually, we come to this back room, and he seats us at this table, and then gives us the menu, and we open the menu, and I almost died. Like, we are definitely in the wrong place. <laughs> But I'm not saying anything to my friend. He's not saying anything to me, but I'm sure we're thinking the same things. Like, what did you get us into here? 
And honestly, I'm looking for the cheapest thing on that menu. <laughs> the cheapest thing on that menu was a $45 meal. And I'm like, the other thing you know about the kids is the last few years, every January, we do a budget reset. So that month, we just trim all luxuries. No eating out, no coffees, no big purchases. But just, it's kind of like, the fast physically got into us. We just took it to a whole other level with our budget for a month. And so I'm already thinking, like, how am I going to justify this with Chantal? Like, this is going to be an over $100 meal for me. Like, anyway, like, we order something. Uh, he wanted wine, so we ordered wine. I was like, oh, my gosh, I'm going to have to sell my kidney to get this. Um, and the, the waiter was fantastic and telling us about very proudly about the business was a, it's a family. It's been there since 1959, I think. And um, just uh, a, a wine cellar in the basement, 30,000 bottles of wine. And there's a reserved table there that if you really want to impress your work colleagues, you can rent it out. And so anyway, we, we have a lovely meal, but the whole time I'm at the back of my head, like, oh my gosh, this is brutal. This is brutal. It's not making me enjoy this delicious food. The food was delicious. I mean, you'd expect that if you were paying that. But anyway, we get to the end of our evening and my friend said, like, he brings the check and he's like, I got this. And I'm like, no. And I'm like, thank you, Jesus. <laughs> Oh, let's split it. You came all the way from Texas. He says, no, I feel bad. I chose the place. I didn't realize it was like this. And so we split it. And I was like, oh, my gosh. That made the evening feel so much better all of a sudden. I don't know why. It was like, oh, this is a great thing. We should order some dessert maybe. I don't know what's going on here. So we had a great time. It was a great catch-up. Um, you know, one of those friends where you don't see each other for years, but then you kind of just pick up from where you left off. And, you know, our lives have gone in kind of different directions in some ways, but it was really great just to reconnect and we had that over a delicious meal at a restaurant. I did I did cover the tip for us for the co-check, so I took that part of business. So I'm not, yeah, I'm not so stingy, okay? Like, let me cover your co-check. Um, on the way home, I'm, I'm Googling this restaurant. And this is one of the, one of the, a couple of different r reviews. Like, one of Toronto's premier steakhouses, expensive and luxurious. Would have been helpful to have known that before. The spot for visiting celebs and city's top athletes. And so if you would like to go to such a restaurant, you can speak to me afterwards. I'll let you know what it is, but I won't leave it here. So, but anyway, his act of generosity changed the entire feel that evening for me. Generosity can do that, right? Sharing a table. So today we're talking about eating and eating in a very positive life. Sometimes we talk about eating, it's gluttony. Now we're talking about eating in a very positive life. So congratulations, you have hit the jackpot of sermon topics that you are here today. And so why are we talking about eating? Because we're in a series. We're in a series that's trying to take the vision of this church and put it into practical ways. You know, vision... A vision statement can be very aspirational. That's great. It should draw us. It should spark our imagination. It should get us to dream like what could be if we achieve this. But at the same time, that needs to be followed up with, with tangible action. And so I actually want to put up the vision statement of this church because I realize there's a lot of new folk that have joined our church. I think there's probably some folk you've been here for years. And you're like, I didn't even know we had a vision statement. And so I want to put it up and let you know what our church's vision statement is. It says, as a church... We envision being a multi-ethnic people of all ages who passionately follow Jesus together on his mission to bring gospel transformation to the people 
and culture of Toronto and through it to the world. And I think we crafted that in about 2016, 2017. We had a, several months of some key leaders in the church. We really prayed through that. It wasn't just like, hey, this sounds like a great thing to do. Just really aligned what we felt was important to us. More importantly, what we felt God's calling us. And I say us, if you're part of this church, this is us. This is the kind of church we feel strongly that God's called us and graced us to build. And so that's what our vision is. And so this series, uh, the word resolve, just really means a firm determination to do something. You might have known resolutions come from the word, word resolve. And so this is typically a time of year where people are thinking about how to determine to do something. This is the year I'm going to eat better. This is the year we're going to not have expensive dinners at fancy steakhouses and trim the budget. Um, and so ultimately for us, it boils down to three priorities. It's that we're growing in a relationship with Jesus. We call that an upward growth. We're growing upward in our relationship with Jesus, but that we're also growing together as a community, that Christianity is nothing, it cannot be walked out by yourself. It needs to be part of a community. And then the final piece is to be outward looking to the world that Jesus loves, to the world that Jesus died for. And so Pepsi, this series, Pepsi, is our attempt to get us more outward focused. Now, when we talk about being outward focused, sometimes in our minds we can jump to, oh, that's evangelism. And outward focused evangelism is a part of that. And so for some of us evangelists, they love to like go up to people and speak to them about Jesus. For the 99%, the rest of us, that that's terrifying we're like, God bless the evangelists. We need them. And there's a place for that. But the reality is very few of us get excited about that. Most of us are terrified by that. Then on the other extreme, we're like, well, I could just invite someone to church. And there's a place for that. We could all do that. But you're more than just a church marketer. And so somewhere between these kind of extremes, Pepsi is our attempt to get all of us to be on God's mission, not just on a Sunday inviting people to church, not just some radical door-to-door or going up to people and strangers on the streets, but every day where you live, where you work, where you play, where you study, that we're on mission with Jesus. And that's what this series is about. It's about being resolved to uh, be more outward looking and have the heart of God to the people that we interact with in our unique worlds. And so Pepsi, uh, it's just a little acronym that we came up with, pray, eat, bless, connect, invite. We kicked it off last week. We talked about prayer. It was a great message, the foundation really for all of this. We want to be prayerful in everything we do. And so, again, congratulations. You hit the jackpot because you're on week two, eat. So let's talk a little bit about food. Physically, we all have eating in common, right? We need it to survive. But we also use it to celebrate. You know, think of any occasion that you celebrated, a wedding, an anniversary, a birthday, a graduation, whatever it may be, a promotion. And typically, it involves food. Maybe it's going out to dinner or having people over and celebrating it with food. But socially, food serves as a social glue. Um, sharing meals builds stronger and more healthier communities. You know, in doing a little bit of research for this topic, like Study after study after study confirms that families in particular that eat a meal together without the TV on, with the phones, not distracting them, um, generally are healthier. Their kids grow up to be healthier, have healthier relationship with food, and just all around, it's a good thing to do. In fact, on our government website, the Canada government website, they have a whole thing about eating 
uh, healthy. And one of their requirements, one of their suggestions for eating healthy is right at the bottom. What does it say there? Circle. Eat meals with others. It's not about just watching calories. It's not about making sure you get the right intake of fruit and veggies, all that stuff. That's beyond my pay grade. There's people there who'll be able to assert. But it was interesting that they said one of the healthy eating recommendations that you eat meals with others. I just thought that was fascinating. I thought that was very fascinating for a government website to be encouraging people to eat meals together. Why? Because at the table we talk. We open up to one another. We get over some awkwardness, hopefully. We share stories and experiences. We form deeper connections than perhaps we wouldn't at another environment. No wonder many first dates still happen over a meal. You think about that? I mean, it's not to say it's the only way to do a first date and go watch a movie and that kind of thing, but oftentimes when we're dating someone, we go out to dinner because at table... We open up. We get to make a meaningful and deeper connection over that table. But not just physically, not just socially. Theologically and spiritually, food is very significant. Just a quick flyby over the whole of Scripture. Through food, Adam and Eve rebelled. It was through food that Adam and Eve got us into this mess. Through food, God chooses a meal to ratify his covenant of relationship with his people, time, and time again. It's through food that God tests and grows dependence and trust with his people in the wilderness. It's through food that Jesus chooses a meal for us to remember him and the gospel. It's through food that one day our hope of eternal communion with God and with brothers and sisters in Christ will be marked by a great banquet. Congratulations, you hit the jackpot of sermon topics. Food is deeply spiritual, deeply theological. It has deeper connections for us than just a social and physical need. By God's design, relationships are the basis for all human flourishing. And we learn through the Bible that a meal, a shared meal, is one of the primary ways to establish, deepen, and enjoy relationship with God and with others. So Jesus and meals, we're going to get to Scripture. I know some of you are like, okay, <laughs> here's the Bible in all this. We're going to get there. Jesus and meals. So meals were central to life and culture in the time of Jesus and his ministry, just before we put that up, uh, reflects that. Um, you look at the Gospels, a lot of times, uh, a lot of ministry happens at a shared table. Luke's Gospel in particular seems to recount a lot of the stories about Jesus eating with people. In fact, eating is mentioned over 30 times in Luke's Gospel. If you're new to the Bible and you just like this topic, eating, why don't you start with the Gospel of Luke? You're going to marry Jesus and eating. It's a great combination. Um, 19 meals are recorded in Luke's gospel, 13 of which are unique to Luke's gospel and not in other gospels. Luke has a thing about Jesus and meals. As one commentator said, in Luke's gospel, Jesus is either going to a meal, at a meal, or coming from a meal. Some of you are like, this is a Jesus I can follow. <laughs> yes. All right, let's get into one particular meal that Jesus has uh, for our message today. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 to 32. It says this, After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector by the name of Levi sitting at his tax booth. Follow me, Jesus said to him, and Levi got up, left everything, and followed him. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. 
But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So four things I just want to draw from this, the table, the company, the characters at least, the controversy, and the reason. The table, firstly the table. As one New Testament scholar writes about this, he says, it would be difficult to overestimate the importance of the table fellowship for cultures in the Mediterranean basin in the first century. Meal times were far more than occasions for individuals to consume nourishment. Being welcomed at a table for the purpose of eating food with another person had become a ceremony richly symbolic of friendship, intimacy, and unity. And so first century Jewish culture, this table fellowship had strong social and cultural and even spiritual significance. It was a sign of welcome and good standing with the person, with the community, and even with God himself. And so you were very particular about the company you invited or had at the table. Because not only that, it was a very clear religious boundary. It was a social boundary. Who's in and who's out? And this is the time of Jesus. And this is the culture he's entering into. And this is why it's so radical, why he uses meals so often to do his greatest ministry. So let's look at some of the characters. It tells us Levi is a major. Levi becomes, is another name for Matthew. Matthew went on to write, become a disciple, follow Jesus, went on to write the gospel of Matthew in your my Bible. But it says Levi, and he was a tax collector. And then at his, at his banquet, the meal that he threw for Jesus, he had other friends, others, tax collectors, and later on the Pharisees, they were all sinners. And so those labels are kind of lost on us. We're like, why, why would... What's, what's wrong with people who work for the CRA, the Canadian Revenue? Why do we give tax collectors and people who gather taxes? So it's a label that's lost on us today, even though the label sin has lost it, but it had deep and very clear meaning in their culture. And let's understand that because a tax collector was often Jewish people who worked for the Roman Empire, who were collaborating with the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire was impressing the uh, Jewish people at the time. And so it was often a job that was associated with corruption, uh, with greed, because they often took taxes, burdened people by taking money from people and demanding more from them so they could kind of line their own pockets. That was the, the nature of that job or the, the culture around that job. And they were absolutely despised by the religious people. And so if you worked for them, you were, dis- you were shunned. You were an outcast. You were despised. And so that's what it means when it says the tax collectors. It's that group of people that are despised. The label sinner is also kind of uh, a little bit layered. So firstly, sinner in that culture kind of means what it might, you might think. I mean, just anyone who was living just an immoral life, right? Like just a really badly immoral life. Maybe they chose a vacation that was kind of uh, a bit dubious or less than moral. Um, but not only that, it went another way, another la- layer deep. It was also people who had a disregard for the Jewish law. And so if you didn't look at And then the third level, not only that, it wasn't just immoral disregard for the Jewish law. But if you ignored the Pharisees' interpretation of the law, you were counted as a sinner. And so the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, they would study the law of Moses, right? The Jewish law. But they were so passionate about being God's people, so passionate about all the do's and don'ts, that over time they began to add 
things to it, to make sure that they wouldn't sin, make sure. So you could understand maybe their heart was initially right. But by the time it got to Jesus, it was so burdensome. They had added hundreds of law that was outside of the Mosaic law and put that on people. And it was crushing people because no ways could you live up to all that. So if you didn't agree with their interpretation, you were classified as a sinner. And so, for example, they had this weird stuff about hand washing before meals. So I know all parents like, hey, kids, wash your hands. This is where it comes from, all right? So kids, you have a back door here. Well, hey, don't get religious on me, mom and dad, all right? Jesus has set me free. And so they had a very specific thing. If you didn't wash your hands before a meal, you're considered unclean. So Jesus and his disciples often didn't wash their hands. So the whole absurdity of this is Jesus and disciples, by their definition, were classified as sinners. So this is the company that's at Levi's table, tax collectors and sinners, but also Jesus and his disciples. They're there with them. And the religious people can't understand this. So here's the controversy. Why do you eat and drink with these people? Don't you know these people? And if you knew these people, you would never associate with these people. Boundary marker. They're out. We're in. Why are you associating with that? You call yourself a rabbi. You call yourself a man of God. No rabbi, no man of God would be seen dead with those people. So what is Jesus doing? And so no act, no act that Jesus could have done could have broken the boundary of separation more dramatically than him being at the same table with Levi and his friends, who are probably also tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus used meals as a mark, as a sign of God's great welcome into the kingdom. He used it as a demonstration of not separation, but invitation, of destroying this boundary of who's in and who's out, reversing it, and lastly, challenging people's understanding of the very character of God, their understanding of the kingdom of God, of grace, and of salvation. And be careful, because when we read the New Testament, we all think we're, we're on the side of Jesus. We probably were more on the side of the Pharisees, if we're truly honest. It's, it's that shocking. It's that counterintuitive. It's that much of a slap in the face of seeing Jesus, the Son of God, the most holy person that's ever walked, sitting at table with these people. As another commentator put it like this, in a world in which sinners stood inescapably condemned, Jesus' openness to them was irresistible. Contact triggered repentance, listen to this, conversion flowered from communion. What was the reason? Why did he do all this? Later on in Luke's gospel, there's, there's two clear lines that start like this. The Son of Man. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the posture, the attitude, the approach, Jesus. This is his mission. This is why he's here. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. So that's his mission. Well, what was his method? Well, it tells us his method. The Son of Man came eating and drinking. And you say, here is a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. He ate and drank with those people so often he had a reputation of being a glutton, a drunkard, and a friend of these people. This wasn't just a one-off. This was a large part of his ministry of how is he going to change the world one meal at a time. 
something we do every day for many of us multiple times a day. 21 meals in a week, mostly. Like, we're going to change the world. How are we going to do it? We're going to have dinner together. It's more than just a physical, social thing. Something very significant about sharing a meal. Tim Chester, in his book, A Meal with Jesus, says it like this. So the meals of Jesus represent something bigger. They represent a new world, a new kingdom, a new outlook. But they give that new reality substance. Jesus' meals are not just symbols. They're also application. They're not just pictures. They're the real thing in miniature. And so this practice of Jesus, of eating and drinking with people who are probably far from God or those people, is what the New Testament began to uh, increase in its understanding of what is hospitality. And hospitality was a thing that the Jewish people knew very well. It was the treatment, the kindness, and the treatment of guests, of foreigners. But Jesus is adding to this definition. It's not just people that you like. It's people, it's those people. The people that everyone else says on the outside, it's those people that I want to have dinner with. It's the Levites, it's the tax collectors, it's the sinners, it's the prostitutes, if you read some of his other ones. He's having dinner with some real shady characters. And you're glad he does that because, we'll get to it. So practicing hospitality. Romans 12, 13 says practice hospitality. That's what we mean when we say eat, right? It's, it's, eating is important as we've seen it, but it's, it's, the heart behind it is hospitality. And hospitality in our day and age, hospitality, we have a hospitality industry. It's all about curated vacations, luxurious hotels, resorts, restaurants. And that's not the hospitality we're thinking of. Hospitality in this time, a biblical framework at least of hospitality, was being generous and gracious treatment of others, whether they were guests, foreigners, strangers, or those people. It's creating space in our lives and our schedules that draw us towards others, particularly others who are outside of our church community or the other. We think about where we worship, where we live, where we study, where we play. Those are opportunities for us to look and see afresh people that God may be drawing us towards. Um, In her book, I think Sheila's referenced this before, Rosaria Butterfield, the gospel comes with a house key. She says, let God use your home, apartment, dorm room, front yard, community, gymnasium, or garden for the purpose of making strangers into neighbors and neighbors into family. That's what Government Canada says, eat meals with others. It's healthy for us. It's a necessity for us. It's a social component for us. We we. We, we know loneliness is an epidemic in our world today, eat meals with others, but it goes deeper for us in terms of a theological and spiritual significance. There's something that happens over a shared meal that you may not be, you, you unlock something of someone that you may not be able to unlock in other settings. It's like, remember when you were in high school and you had a teacher, you had teachers, and then on the weekend you were out in the shopping mall or at the grocery store or just wherever you were, you were out in normal life, and you saw a teacher. Do you remember how awkward that was? Why is it awkward? Because you relate to them in one way at school. You have this relationship, and it's like, this is how we relate. 
This is how, this is, and everything's set up to relate teacher, student, teacher, student. But now I'm in a totally different environment and it's weird because we're not teacher, student, you're a human being. Teachers are human beings, they need to, you know, do grocery shopping. It's like, yeah, like, <laughs> this is what we're doing. It's like, you have a work colleague, you have a work colleague, you have a work colleague, and then all of a sudden you have a social occasion and it's like, it's different. You see something different about them. You relate different about them. Maybe it's awkward at first because you're not kind of sure. Like the, the boundaries of the relationship are clear here at work or at the classroom or on campus or the high school cafeteria. But in this environment, I'm not quite sure how we're to relate. That's what we're talking about. Because we get to relate to one another or potentially relate to one another in a totally different way. Remember last summer, uh, my daughter was playing a soccer tournament and at the end of the soccer tournament, there was a very spontaneous call from some of the parents like, hey, let's just all go grab a meal. So kids are planners like, oh, spontaneity sucks. It's my personality. Believe it or not, I'm an introvert. So like, oh, my, oh gosh, I didn't have like two hours of preparation to psych myself up for the social engagement that this is calling for. But this is a part of God's working on me. So like we said, yes. And so we went to a restaurant, and I got to sit down with one of the dads, and over the next two, three hours, we just had conversation. And like, it's one thing relating. So again, we, were, we had this unspoken agreement of we're dads, and this is what we do on the sideline. We talk about the game, and like, the daughter's like, oh, this is what they're doing, coach. Blah, blah, blah. So that, but we're comfortable with that. Now we're in a restaurant. It's like, oh, you're a person. <laughs> oh, tell me about your life. <laughs> okay, like, and... Uh, it's so good. It was so good for me to be challenged like that as an introvert. Uh, so good for me to be challenged like that to have uh, interruptions in my life. Um, that's a big part of, I think, 2024 for me is spirit-led interruptions. I was sharing that at the end of our fast with some of the people of what, what I feel like, just a spirit-led calendar. I'm still a planner. I believe God's a planner, by the way. I do. <laughs> but I believe Jesus also modeled for us. Um, just spirit-led interruptions can lead to some divine encounters with people who really need that and so i want to encourage us as we try to practice pepsi as we try to look in our every day as we don't feel like the evangelistic do you love jesus like that's not the conversation to have okay all we're asking you is could you take one of your 21 meals that you're going to eat this coming week and could you look to repurpose one of them to maybe invite a colleague out and it doesn't have to be expensive. <laughs> it certainly doesn't have to be downtown expensive steakhouse. It doesn't even have to be your table. You could borrow a table from Starbucks. You could borrow a table from Tim Hortons. Gosh, you could borrow our table in the foyer in about 10, 15 minutes and practice hospitality right there. How do you do that? Find someone you don't know in this place and say, hey, I've noticed you. Uh, what's your name? Tell me your story. That's how easy and we can do it. It can be put into practice right now in 15 minutes. So how are we going to create space? Well, we store intentionally. Part of life is intentionality. You know it. Resolutions, Don. It's great to have goals. You know, James Clear wrote a book called Atomic Habits. It's a really uh, bestseller. I think it's still a bestseller. In fact, every January I think it becomes a bestseller again because his thing is all about like, but he has a great line. I think it's a, I'm going to butcher it, so I'll just paraphrase it. But he says, you don't rise to the level of your goals. Lose weight. Make more money. Get the promotion. You fall to the level of your systems. Goals are good to have, but if you don't have a system to work towards that, you're not going to rise to your goal. You're going to sink to your system. So here's a system. Be intentional. 
Who is it at your workplace? Who is it at your school, your college, your campus? Who is it in your community here? doesn't even have to be out there. Who is it that, that perhaps you could draw closer to in the next week, two weeks, three weeks? Ideally, it's someone that's already on your Pepsi card that you're praying for. Um, because if you're praying for that person, it's probably God's leading you to pray for that person because God's doing something in their life. And maybe now you can match it up with a, a coffee or a meal or sharing a table together. You know, I was thinking about we're in Toronto, one of the world's, if not the world's most diverse city. And I was thinking oftentimes as Christians particularly, it certainly was my mindset, is I'm coming to Toronto because Toronto needs me. <laughs> okay, I'll just confess, like Toronto needs me, it needs more churches. You know, I'm here, God, let's get going. As if God was not working until I showed up. God's always working. He's always working on your friend, your colleagues, way beyond what you can see. So don't be intimidated if you don't see something on the outside that's giving you any signs. Just be prayerfully spirit-led in that. But what if I, what if you, what if we're here in Toronto more because we need the city than the city needs us? What if you're here in the world's most diverse city because you need to be challenged and shaped by the ethnic, social, political, cultural and socioeconomic diversity that you would not get anywhere else on this planet? What if you need to be challenged by that? It's easy to have a meal with people like me, who look like me, who speak the language like me. Okay? It's easy. But maybe God's asking us to go beyond just easy and be a bit more like Jesus to the others who live a life that I don't share. Jesus didn't share in the lifestyle they were living, but he certainly was able to have fellowship with them and impact them. So much so that a lot of them turn to Jesus like, we have never experienced this. You're a, you're a rabbi like no other. Because they always tell us how far away from God we are, how disappointed God is. You don't live up to standards, but you're different. You're, you're telling us something very different. So intentionally, so start here, church community. Like it's, this is a, this is a you know, basketball term, an alley-oop, right? Here's an alley-oop. Just in 10 minutes' time, we're going to have a coffee bar. Instead of like rushing off to go back to whatever your life is like, slow down, grab a coffee, and try to grab a coffee with someone who doesn't look like you, or you don't know, or you're not just going to gravitate to the friends. And so it's our coffee. It's free. <laughs> so we paid for it. <laughs> Uh, it's literally, we have a hospitality team. It's their, it's their heart is to make sure people who come to our church feel welcomed. Not just because that's a cool thing to do, because that's what Jesus would do. And if you're here and you say, like, you don't know my life, we don't know your life, but we want to know your life. And we're going to try our best not to judge one another's lives because we've all got stuff in our lives that we're not proud of, right? And so you're welcome here and let's get to know one another. But push it beyond that. What about the people in your life? You know, we have opportunity at Adam House in December. I was there with a bunch of 13 people. My daughter joined me as well. And that's what we do. On a Friday night, we share a meal with the residents. These are refugees that have come from crazy situations in their country. Highly educated people. I sat with a lady, and she was like a master's engineering. Had worked two years as an engineer, top in her country, and had to flee because of civil war. And now she's like looking just to try and work a job here. And so what is Adam House when we go there on a Friday night or a Saturday? It's hospitality. It's the welcome of people that we don't know that are strangers, that we're trying to turn them into friends and neighbors and neighbors into family. That's what we're trying to do. 
What about outside your church community where you live, you work, you play? We've all talked about that. So there's intentionality needed, but then spontaneity. Be open to those interruptions, particularly for you people like us that are planners. And I'm not saying I'll become like a carefree spirit because you'll die. <laughs> like, oh, I'm just not going to plan anything. I'm just going to see how everything goes. No, like, it's not either or. It's like a tension of both ends. You can plan, but you can also plan for spontaneity within that. Say, God, I want to be open to the interruptions. And that's the thing. They're, they're always dressed as inconveniences. It's never like, hey, this is a great opportunity for you. It's like, this is an inconvenient thing. You didn't feel like you were ready. You didn't want to be with people. But will you go? Will you hang out? Will you stay later after work to just have that conversation with that person? Lastly, we're going to end with this and invite the band up. Why do we do all this? What's the motivation? Is it because this is the thing that we do as a church? Well, yes, it is the thing that we want to do as a church. We want to be resulted in this. But it's more than just that. Why do we do this? Because this is how God has treated every single one of you and I. The story of the Bible says that we're not invited, we're not supposed to be at his table. We can't be at his table. We don't measure up to being at his table. We fall short of being guests at his table. But everything in our design says we should be at that table. That's how life works best is when we're at table with God, but we're somehow barred from that, and God did something about that. And so through Jesus, he has flung open the invitation to his table, regardless of your education, the color of your skin, your background, even your religion. It doesn't matter. His table is open to all of us. He's invited all of us to table, to fellowship with him. And so when we treat others like that, we are being like God to them because we've experienced it ourselves. And so if you need a reminder of God's invitation to you, reflect upon that. You weren't invited to his table, but now you are. You're the chosen guest at his table. He's brought you to his table. And now he wants you and I to bring others to his table. So let's pray as we go into another song of worship. God invites each one of us to his table. Maybe for that, for some of you today, it's the first time you're hearing that. But we would love to help you understand more of what that means, of responding to Jesus. And then for the majority of us, planners, non-planners, evangelists, non-evangelists, introverts, extroverts, ambiverts, all the other verts, whatever they are, we don't get to excuse away the heart of God because of our personalities. The heart of God is for the other, those people. And we want to be a church that tries to do that. And it, it's the first thing that gets pushed away. We love hanging out with one another. Let's, let's not stop that. Have, have table fellowship with your small group. Have table fellowship with people in this church. That's a big part of that. We, we take... Once a month, we have fellowship through communion. It's a big part of it. But let's be mindful of others that God wants at that table too. Let's be mindful of the people not here yet that maybe God wants to use you and me to invite them to ultimately his table. And so, Father, I pray today as we've heard from your word, as we've 
been challenged by the example of Jesus that, God, you'd give something tangible for each person to walk away with from here, a tangible action that lines up with your posture of your heart towards others. God, bring to mind right now, even in, in this moment by your Holy Spirit, just bring to mind a face of someone that we interact with on a regular basis. Maybe someone at school, God. Maybe someone on our campus, in our dorm room. Maybe someone in our workplace. God, maybe some, maybe our physical, literal neighbor in the neighborhood we live, wherever it may be. Maybe someone sitting right here, right now. God, help us just to put something into practice from this message of your invitation to your table. And may this church, God, may we be resolved this year to be a church that prays and eats and welcomes and treats generously and kindly those uh, that are outside right now of your fellowship and your table. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from Every Nation GTA. Thanks for joining us. For more information, visit our website at everynationgta.org.